this short passage that we're going to look at this evening is tied in with a number of the other passages that we've been looking at for the past month or two, uh, starting uh, largely in chapter 3 and then moving through chapters 4 and the first part of chapter 5. Obviously, in the immediate context, you have this harsh uh, rebuke of the rich who, in their pride, think that they are above God, and yet they face God's severe judgment for their acts of oppression specifically toward God's people. Verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And then James's exhortation is, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. In the face of intense persecution, those who are oppressing God's people, those who are going their own way, revealing hearts of selfishness and, and hatred against God and anyone connected with them, why would James say, therefore... Be patient until the coming of the Lord. I want you to notice real quick the parallel between 4, 13 to 17 and 5, 1 through 12. In 4, 13 to 17, he starts out, come now, you who say, and then introduces an idea and responds to it, and then has a conclusion in verse 17. Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. Chapter 5 and verse 1, come now. You rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Verse 7, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The parallel is it's come now in a statement or a truth and an explanation of it and then a conclusion or a response to it. The difference about what's going on in chapter 5 versus what was going on in chapter 4 is that in chapter 4 it was the same audience both that was being addressed and the conclusion was being given to But in chapter 5, he's condemning the rich, and then he's turning to the people who are facing their persecution, and he's saying, now how do you respond in light of that? And what was their response to be? Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. What is the end date on suffering for the believer? It is either we go to be with God when we die, or it is the return of Jesus Christ. This was something that Paul was well acquainted with. This was something that James himself, I'm sure, became well acquainted with. Many in the early church were aware of these realities in a way that I think we have lost sight of because the coming of the Lord seems distant and because the nature of the persecution that we face is more of a daily... It's more of a a, a low-intensity daily opposition that wears on us over time than a sharp point of having to say, are you going to follow Christ or not follow Christ, because the end result is going to be death or judgment in some way from those who have power over us in this world. But the admonition is the same. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Bear up under these trials, which of course echoes back to the very beginning of the book, right? God has put you in trials, in times of testing, so that your faith would be strengthened, so that you might endure. And a very similar admonition, consider it all joy, knowing that the testing produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Letting endurance have its perfect result is a parallel idea to be patient until Christ returns. Then he gives an illustration of it in verse 7. The farmer waits for the harvest, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. 
How many of you have planted a garden of any kind? Okay. What has to happen for the garden to grow? You need sun, you need rain. And the sunlight's where something where you flip a switch and the rain is something where you turn on the water, right? Well, we have some control about those things, but have you ever watched the difference in your garden between artificial lighting? I've grown plants inside my basement. Artificial lighting, 10,000 lumens. Sunlight at midday is about 100,000 lumens, 10 times as powerful. They're not dying, but they're not growing nearly as fast as they would if they were under direct sunlight. Same thing with water, and you can irrigate things, but it grows a lot better with rainwater than with irrigation. And in James's day, they would have largely relied on seasons of rain. In our climate, it comes in, this, in the, the, the spring and in the fall, like we're experiencing even today. And in their culture, it would have been fairly similar. The times might have been staggered a little bit. That's what they relied on for their crops to grow, for the harvest, and they had to be patient about it. It was something outside of their control, but what was within their control? They had to go out and get the fields ready. They had to go out and plant the seed. So patience doesn't mean I'm sitting in my easy chair waiting for stuff to happen, and it'll happen when it happens, and I've got nothing to do until it happens. Patience for the farmer is night and day labor about the things that he can do, waiting for the things that he can't. The parallel for us as believers is there's a lot of things that God has called us to do as a church, right? There were a lot of things that James's hearers had been called to do as a church. The end date of persecution was not something that they could set. The time of deliverance was in God's hands. Their responsibility was to be patient and to be diligent about the work that God had called them to do. Verse 8, he gives the, the admonition and then a reason for it, an illustration. And then he says, you too be patient, like the farmer, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. This is the thing that God often says to his people in times when they're discouraged and weak and afraid. Think about the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua. Be strong and very courageous, right? Same kind of idea. Strengthen your hearts, not Look inside and find the inner strength that spills out into your ability to shape the world around you. Because you and I don't have that kind of ability in ourselves. For all those who would say, trust your heart, follow your dreams, anything is possible, the reality is that's not really true. But in God, all things are possible according to his purpose that are pleasing to him as his people. And so that's where our strength lies, not in ourselves, but in God. We strengthen our hearts in connection with truths we know about God from his word, as we gather with one another, strengthen your hearts, and then he gives the reason for the coming of the Lord is near. This is a point that we may have tension with. Why? Because in James's day, it had only been a few years since Jesus had left. In our day, it's been centuries, a couple of millennia, right? 2,000 years and more since Jesus, almost 2,000 years since Jesus left. Is the coming of the Lord still near? Peter says in 2 Peter 3, there are those who say the coming of the Lord is not near because everything keeps going on the same way and we're getting away with bad stuff and God's not judging us, so either God has forgotten, he's weak, he's powerless, he doesn't care. 
Why do you guys bother to keep following that kind of God? And that sort of thinking can start to creep in for us as well. But then we should also remember what Peter says, which is that a thousand years with the Lord is with the, as, as a day, and a day is a thousand years. In other words, God is outside of time, and his timetable is different from ours. And from God's perspective, who beholds everything in a way that we can't really fully comprehend, his coming is near. And we ought to be ready for it at any moment. Think about Jesus' illustration about the, um, I guess you would call them bridesmaids at a wedding, right? Some of them said, you know what? We don't have to be ready. It's a ways until it happens. And then they come and the door is shut because they've missed it. For the believer, we ought always to be ready, always anticipating Christ's return. This was the testimony of the believers in 1 Thessalonians 1, right? They turn from idols to God to serve the living and true God. And then the phrase that we sometimes skip over, to wait for his son from heaven. Waiting for the return of Christ is as much a part of being a Christian as the initial repentance and the ongoing life of service to God. There's also a constant expectation of our Lord and Savior coming back. So these things were to give them hope in the midst of their trials. Be patient. Just like the farmer who's waiting for the rains and is diligent getting ready for his crops in the harvest. Be patient. Strengthen your hearts. God's coming is near. And then things take a surprising turn. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. Why does he throw that in there? Because it is possible in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of serving God faithfully, to look at those who are behaving wrongly around us and to be blind to our own sinfulness that has crept into our lives, right? Think about what he said back at the beginning of chapter 4. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among, among you? You fight and quarrel in verse 2, and then what he had said previously in chapter 3, there are many of you who are not controlling your tongues, and so this is an ongoing problem for James's audience, and he wants them to make sure that they don't think that that's all taken care of just because God has said, I'm coming back and be patient for me coming back. There is still room for repentance, even among God's people, of the sins that continue to plague us because we are not yet made perfect. And in our rejoicing against, uh, about God's righteous judgment on those who are oppressing his people and opposing his will, we might be like, yeah, God's going to judge them. God's going to punish them. James is reminding them, God is not just the judge of the wicked, but also of the righteous. If you sin, he will hold you accountable, just like he's holding them accountable for their sin. Not in precisely the same way, because we are secure in our standing in Christ, but God is still the judge. It says the judge is standing right at the door. Do not complain so that you yourselves may not be judged. How then do we avoid complaining, murmuring, grumbling, groaning, I think is the, the way that word is sometimes translated. We consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6, uh, 1 through 11. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, 
and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. These things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Well, that sounds a lot like what James has said in chapter 4, right? Your pleasures wage war among you and create conflicts and quarrels among you, right? And part of the reason that was taking place was potentially because they had forgotten the warnings that the examples of the Israelites before them had provided for them. If God punished the Israelites for grumbling in the wilderness and loving sinful pleasures and all these sorts of things, the same God is your God today. Learn from their bad example. Don't live that way. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. In what way did they grumble? God provided food for them in the wilderness, miraculously, daily, constantly, with faithfulness. And they said, you know what? We were better off in Egypt because we could eat meat to our heart's content. We had seasonings like leeks and onions and chives and whatever else. The food tasted so much better while we were slaves making bricks being oppressed by the Egyptians. The food was so much better there in Egypt. We wish we could go back there. And this foolish fellow Moses has led us out in the wilderness. And we're going to die from having to eat the same thing every day. Do we complain about the blessings of God? Do we grumble against one another? Oh, that, that, I can't believe that way that person talked to me, or, you know, they didn't say hi to me, they must hate me, or, you know, these sorts of things get into our minds, get into our thinking. They create disunity in the body of Christ. James is warning his hearers against thinking everything is fine with them just because God has promised to judge the rich who are sinfully oppressing them. They need to examine their own hearts as well. God is the judge, both of the righteous and the wicked. Therefore, watch your words and take care that you do not complain and grumble against one another. Back in James chapter 5. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And I was thinking through what examples James might have had in mind when he said, look at the examples of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, who both suffered and were patient under it. Uh, two examples come to mind. One is the prophet Elijah, because in Elijah's day, Jezebel was literally killing any prophet of the Lord that she could find, right? And he continued to follow God, sometimes with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. I'm the only one that's following God in the whole land of Israel. And God says, no, you're not. But he still faithfully followed God. And then the example that I think even is a, a better illustration of this is the prophet Jeremiah. Turn over to Jeremiah uh, chapter 20. Jeremiah 20 says, When Pasher, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, so he's working, 
in the temple, right? Heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, judgment from God. He had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks at the upper Benjamin gate by the house of the Lord. On the next day, when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, Pasher is not the name the Lord has called you, but rather Magor Misabib, which means terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And while your eyes look in, look on, they will fall by the sword of their enemies. So I will give over Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon. He will carry them away as exiles to Babylon and will slay them with the sword. I will give over all the wealth of this city, all its produce and its costly things, even the treasures of the king of Judah. I will give over to the hands of their enemies and they will plunder them, take them away and bring them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who live in your house will go into captivity and you will enter Babylon and there you will die and there you will be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have falsely prophesied. This was not a popular message. Jeremiah would have had a much easier life if he would quit saying these things, but this was what God had given him to say, and so he continued to speak them. Jeremiah brings this complaint before God in verse 7. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction, because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, for I can, and I cannot endure it. For I have heard the whispering of many, terror on every side. Denounce him, yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall say, perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have set forth my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise to the Lord, for he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of evildoers. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let not the day be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. Let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. Let him hear an outcry in the morning, a shout of alarm at noon, because he did not kill me before birth, so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Jeremiah went through a lot of difficulty in his life. And uh, I don't think that he was sinning in his complaint before the Lord. He's just saying, everywhere I turn, my words are rejected. What we would expect to be, you know, we like to quote the verse that's like, the word of the Lord will not return void, and it goes out into the earth, and it does all that it's supposed to do, and that makes us feel good. But we don't write songs that say, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But that was Jeremiah's experience. On a daily basis, he would speak God's word. People would mock him and reject him and persecute him because he was saying God's word, because the people were living in sin, didn't want to hear about God's judgment, didn't want to be reminded of it, and didn't want to know what was coming because it wasn't something that they wanted to look forward to. 
And so Jeremiah says, there are times when I'm filled with despair and when it almost seems like it would have been better if I had never been born and if the person who had announced my birth had, had calamity come upon him and all of these other sorts of things. Because of the grief of his ongoing following of God and proclaiming the word of the Lord to a people who would not listen. James says, consider the examples of the prophets as an example for you of what it means to go through suffering. And it's not a matter of comparing our situation to theirs and saying, well, mine is worse than Jeremiah's in this way and better than Jeremiah's in this way, so, you know, I have a little bit of an edge or I'm a little bit of worse off than him. That's not the point of look at the prophets. The point is God took care of them even through the suffering that they endured. I'll flip over to chapter 38 of Jeremiah. The beginning of chapter 38, the people heard the words Jeremiah was speaking to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty or spoil and stay alive. Thus says the Lord, This city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. And then verse 4, the official said, Now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them, for this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. This fellow is a traitor. This fellow is not patriotic. This fellow is undermining the morale of the soldiers. we got to fight against the Babylonians, and this guy is saying, Go out and surrender to the enemy. Let's kill him and get rid of him. King Zedekiah said, he's in your hands, the king can do nothing against you, which is not true, but that's what he responded. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and let Jeremiah down with ropes. In the cistern there was no water, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. But Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the cistern. The king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin. And he went out from the king's palace and spoke to the king, saying, My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah, the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern, for, where, and he will die right there because of the famine, for there is no more bread in the city. So the king sends him to bring him up, and they bring him up, and then the king says, Don't hide anything from me. Jeremiah says, I'm going to tell you the truth, but you're probably going to want to kill me because it's not what you want to hear. But the king swears, As the lord lives, I will not put you to death. And then Jeremiah prophesies judgment yet again. So he's had plots against his life. He's been thrown in a muddy pit where that used to hold water. He's lamented the day of his birth. This was the experience of the prophet Jeremiah. This is one of the examples that James would hold up before us and say, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. I'll say, well, that kind of puts a, a, a downward attitude on what this looks like to wait patiently for God. But think about it. Is being a farmer easy? You've got to get up early. You've got to go out in the rain and the snow and the sleet and everything else. You've got to do the work, whether you feel like it or not, because the work has to be done. So there's interesting parallels between the life of a farmer and the life of a prophet. 
Both of them are examples of patience and of diligence and of waiting for God. Verse 11, we count those blessed who endure. And one of the commentaries pointed out, but we don't always want to be like them. But we do see God's hand at work in their lives. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And that would have been something that perhaps they would have to think about, that we would have to think about, because God put Job through a lot, right? And he never fully answered all his questions. But Job followed God. Job didn't deny the Lord. Job continued to try to understand the circumstance that he was in, coming to a point where he was almost demanding for God to um, give him an answer, and God does answer him, but not in the way that he expects. But Job endures under the trial that God put him through. And we see ultimately at the end of the, end of the book of Job what God is like more than what Job was like, and God receives glory for it. But Job is another example of those who endured under suffering, suffering not because of anything that he had done wrong, the farmer, when he, if he does his job and the rain doesn't come, is that on him? No. The prophet, if he speaks God's word and the people don't listen, has he failed in his task? No. Job was faithful to God, and God still put him through difficulty and through suffering, and it was an opportunity for God to reveal his faith and bring himself glory. Do we have the same conclusion about suffering? Then he says again in verse 12, But above all, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, and your no is to be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Where does this verse fit? Does it fit with what just came before it? Does it fit with com what comes after it? This verse seems to be a summary or a concluding statement of all of the things that James has been saying about the tongue, about the way that we're supposed to live in chapters 3 and 4 and now into chapter 5. It is uh, in reference, a quotation, if you will, of what Christ said in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, Christ, speaking on the Sermon of the Mount, says that, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is evil. And so James is citing the words of Christ here in this verse, and why does he pick this idea? Some have said that perhaps it's because these Christians who are being oppressed by the rich might have been tempted to make promises that they could not keep with regard to debts that they owed and were not able to pay. You know, sort of the idea of, you know what, I don't have it today, but I'll for sure have it for you next week. And if that's the case, does it help? or undermine the testimony of Christ to make those sorts of promises and then not fulfill them. It certainly wouldn't help their testimony as believers. And so James is saying, 
Be honest. You live in a world in which the rich are oppressing you, in which there doesn't seem to be an immediate end to the difficulty that you're facing. But you have a responsibility not to grumble against those around you and not to be dishonest even against those who are mistreating you. Say yes, say no, and don't make oaths that you don't intend to keep, I think is the implication, because that's the context in Matthew 5, right? The issue was not primarily the making of oaths or promises. The issue was they went into it and they would say, you know, I made this promise by the temple or by the gold of the temple, but I didn't make it by the temple itself. It's sort of like what we would say today. Well, I promised, but my fingers were crossed, so I don't have to do it. You know, that sort of idea. If we as believers can't be trusted, who can be trusted, right? Two examples of this. When I was, uh, I had a summer job uh, after my freshman year of college, and I was, um, I guess it was, anyways, doesn't matter. I was working for a guy, and I had called around to see what kind of jobs were available, like computer jobs in the area. And the guy called me back. He said, come down to the office. I get to the office. He's like, I gotta go meet somebody, so I'm just gonna leave you here, work on these couple of things, and then come back. And I said, Okay, uh, and then he comes back, and at one point, sometime in there, I said, so why did you just leave me there with your office unlocked and all this computer equipment sitting there and all those sorts of things? And um, he was a Mormon. He said, well, the school that you went to made Brigham Young look like a party school, so I figured I could trust you with all this stuff. I said, okay. That's not quite <laughs> the point of this passage, but it ties into it. Um, and then recently... Uh, in dealing with some of the people connected with getting the office renovated. I was like, do you need my credit card information, all those sorts of things? And, and one of them said something about, no, you know, we can't trust church people. Who can we trust? Which is a good point, right? That's James's point. If you as believers can't have your word be trusted, who can be trusted? Not in our own ability, not in our own strength, not to pat ourselves on the back, but simply to say, we can't use the sinfulness of people around us as an excuse to be sinful ourselves. Which I think is the point that he was making in the previous section of three verses, right? And so as we come together with all these things, right? In trials, we need to watch what we say. We need to watch our responses. Because until Christ comes back, he still wants us to faithfully live for him, right? He will give us the strength to endure. He will help us, whether it's from the trial or through the trial, even a trial that ends in death, like it talks about in Hebrews. Our responsibility is to faithfully live for him, not to grumble against one another, not to lie even to those that we think don't deserve the truth, but to be examples of God despite all of the things that we are going through. Because if, like it says in chapter 4, we are like adulteresses who are worldly in our life, that undermines the gospel of Christ. If we speak carelessly, like it said in chapter 3, again, we reveal that we have not achieved the maturity that we profess sometimes as Christians. If we say that we have faith but don't back it up by works, our words are empty. 
If we show partiality in the congregation of the church, we undermine the gospel that says God is at work in all people, whether they be rich or poor, whatever their background. In the face of suffering, we ought to see the hand of God and then live a life that is righteous and honoring to God. And the next section, I think, is uh, some people argue whether it's a conclusion or whether it's a final admonition. We'll talk more about that next week. But these things as well point to faith in God because he's going to say essentially, even if you're not immediately being oppressed by the rich, you're going to go through suffering and difficulty. You're going to go through sickness. You're going to have to be waiting for answers to your prayer like Elijah the prophet. We'll look more at that next week. But in this passage, watch your words and your actions while you wait for the return of Christ because God will help you endure, but he expects you to follow him as you wait for his return. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the short passage and the powerful truths that are in it. We pray that you would help us to be patient in difficulty, to watch our own hearts and the actions and words and things that flow out of our hearts that reveal what's going on in them so that we might be good examples of those who are your people, even to those who might be doing wrong to us in the time period between now and when Christ comes back. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.